Welcome, folks, to The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Every week, diving deep into the truth of Catholic social teaching and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner. I'm Dr. Bud Marr. We are coming to you live. I don't know where Bud's coming from. I'm sure it's not nearly as much fun as I'm having because I'm coming here live from the Iowa State Fair. You probably hear in the background that we're doing uh, the Star Spangled Banner as they start off every time at 10 a.m. here at the Iowa State Fair. Bud, what less fun things going on over where you're at? I'm sitting here in, in my office in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. No fried anything. Fried pickles, fried pizza, fried Oreos. Just sipping on and no land coffee at either. the National Institute for Newman Studies. <laughs> well, <laughs> if people want to know the bland things that are going on, they can find you over at uh, NIMS. What's your your web address? NewmanStudies.org. Yeah, here in Des Moines, if you want to find out what we're doing, I'm um, the director of Mission Ministry of Mercy College, MCHS.edu, and uh, the director of the Zeta Institute. So that's ZetaInstitute.com. We're finishing up uh, the Star Spangled Banner, and then we can get going uh, live. But I think this might be the first time we get to open the show with the Star Spangled Banner. This is very patriotic. This will mesh well with our eagle screech. <laughs> All right, play ball, bud. Yeah. So, Bud, we're here at the Iowa State Fair. We don't have pierogies. I've literally looked around, so we don't have the Pittsburgh action going on. But nearly everything else fried, available to one if they just stop on down here at the Iowa State Fair. But beyond fried foods, Bud, you can also do wonderful things. For instance, I I went to confession beforehand. We have priests out here hearing confessions. We're giving away rosaries. We got uh, deacons who are going to talk to people. All of this under the the mighty shade of uh, of the trees outside of what's what's this stadium called? Ann and Bill Riley stage. The Ann and Bill Riley stage. Uh, so we've been in that shadow for years and years now, and uh, it, it's wonderful to be part of the Iowa State Fair. I'm glad that we're actually uh, finally to get to um, uh, broadcast from here. But you got to go to the Iowa State Fair a few times. Do you have any fond memories that you need to tell the people about? Oh, there are fond memories. The food, of course, is great. Uh, my sister-in-law, so Rachel's sister, was actually on the news a couple years ago because uh, at oh, the wow. fair, I hope she's okay with me telling this story, she took a, a permanent mark and wrote her phone number like on her children's arm, and, and one of the boys ended oh, up yeah. getting lost. and So it, it actually worked out. So do write your phone number so on your children's I, bodies. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, literally, we're uh, the Robin and the kids are going to go with uh, her family, who's coming up. They're big fair people, uh, and they're going to do the old uh, Mar family lesson. No, I guess this was well, you know, your your extended family. So we're going to do the temporary uh, phone number tattoo as well. So that's pretty great. Yep. No, it's not a bad strategy. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I too was interviewed about the fair. I got to be on EWTN. It was for five seconds, literally. Uh, but they did call and ask about Iowa State Fair and uh, politics. And, hey, bud, it's because they went and looked on the website of Iowa Catholic Radio, and they're like, hey, 
We talk about politics. Now, Jeannie Wells pointed out her show probably should have been the one that they called. Uh, but, yeah, man, they were like, uh, Bo or Bud, those are two guys that need to be on television for about five seconds. Yeah, you did a good job with that. And I, I think your short bit, like what it captured, is that Iowa really has become a unique political context. I think something to be proud of where, uh, of course, like presidential candidates are concerned about doing well there. But a lot of the issues that are pressing for our country, you know, uh, farming and taxes and all those things, uh, I think Iowa is sort of like uh, the, the tip of the spear. I agree. I do think that where the presidential candidates are really dropping the ball is if anybody would focus their campaign on corn dogs, but corn dogs. I think well, corn dogs are the key to the next uh, getting to the heart of the American people, if I can say anything about state fairs. I think I texted this to you, but I, I did find a video this week of different candidates testing uh, food at the fair, and they're trying to prove, you know, like how much of the people they are. But I'll be honest, several of the candidates right. looked really awkward eating various forms of fried food. But I feel like our radio team, Deacon Tony, Jimmy, yourself, John Leonetti, Jeannie Wells, we could make a similar video and just really knock it out of the park. Just like throwing down That's right. the worst think... types of food. <laughs> we could really show up yeah. all of these uh, out, these outsiders coming and trying to eat our food. Ah, we could show them how the real deal is done. Well, so today on the show, bud, we're going to have back, uh, so she, that officially makes her a uncommon good all-star, Haley Stewart. Um, Haley Stewart came on and talked about her book, The Grace of Enough, Pursuing Less and Living More in a Throwaway Culture. Um, we're having her on to talk about a recent article she had um, where she talks about uh, birthing skeptics, the question, can we justify having children in the world today that was on the public discourse? Really what this is talking about is hope. Now, it's kind of funny uh, because uh, she always loves talking about uh, festivity, and so, you know, to be able to talk to her when we're talking at the Iowa State Fair is pretty cool. Um, but one thing I want to do before we uh, head to the first break is uh, I don't want to forget to mention our underwriters. So Mercy College makes it uh, completely possible for us to have this show and broadcast at wonderful places like the fair. In fact, Bud, yesterday and, t and today, working at their booth, letting people know about Mercy College. We just got done with the summer semester. We're getting ready to do fall one coming up. So uh, thank you, Mercy College, for making that possible, mchs.edu. And uh, I think at this point, just to let people know, we'll be back right after this broadcasting from the Iowa State Fair. The Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. I'm joining you from the Iowa State Fair, so if you hear a little bit of wind, music in the background, and chomping of fried foods, you'll know what's going on. Uh, we have Bud out at Pittsburgh joining us, and then we have our guest on today, Haley Stewart, beekeeper's wife, mother of four, speaker and author of The Grace of Enough, Pursuing Less and Living More in a Throwaway Culture. She blogs at Carrots for Michael Mass, co-hosts the Fountains of Carrots podcast, and has been on our show before. Haley, thank you for joining the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I, I hope you feel honored that the first time we ever appear at the fair, you get to be our guest. We, you, you talk so much about the necessity of festivity at other places that I just thought it's obvious if we're going to talk about hope, you should be our guest and talking at such a hopeful place like a state fair. 
Well, I'm honored <laughs> to be at the fair with you in a manner of speaking. That's right. I, I, if only we could figure out how to very quickly get you um, food that is disastrous for your health but warming of the soul, <laughs> we would do so. <laughs> now, uh, um, you, you and I talked about this before, uh, before we got on air. We're, we're at a fair. Fairs are fun. Fairs are all good. And, and we are, we are going to talk about hope ultimately. Um, but the occasion for talking about hope is maybe the exact opposite of a state fair. You, you wrote a wonderful <laughs> article on the public discourse called Can We Justify Bringing Children Into This Dark World? Now, Haley, that's a bit of a downer. <laughs> Tell us what motivated you to write uh, this article. Uh, and 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 why uh, you felt compelled, and I think compelled is the right word, and you were the per- the perfect person to answer this. Why you felt compelled to answer uh, this sort of question? Sure. Well, I had read about a growing movement called Birth Strike. So basically, it's well-intentioned women who see the disasters of climate change looming, all sorts of suffering in the world, and say, we can't in good conscience ever bring children into this world. So we are going to make our choice to be childless a public choice, like a movement to say that this is no longer something that anyone in good conscience could do because children will suffer and there is so much suffering in the world. How could we ever do that to a child? So that is the movement that I was responding to in writing the piece. Now, at a place like a fair, of course, one of the things you see walking around are children. There are more children than anyone could want to do anything with. We were talking uh, before the break <laughs> with Bud that uh, his, his, uh, uh, his, his sister-in-law uh, got famous here because she, she wrote um, the number to call in case one of their kids got lost. And so my wife and I were talking about this. And she, we're, we're like, well, would anybody, what would happen if someone tried to run off with a kid in the fair? And I'm like, at a fair, everyone sees so many children. I don't think anyone's like, I want to run on them. There's still enough of them here. Um, <laughs> but all that said, um, there's certainly a case that more and more, I, I was at a conference at Notre Dame and the question got brought up. What are we going to do with the fact uh, that people are out and out now making statements, scientists saying that if you want to decrease your carbon footprint, you should have one less child or even none. Uh, and then when you start to think about people, uh, you, you particularly pointed out millennials, starting to wrestle with coming of childbearing age and what that means, uh, it certainly says a lot about our culture when the, the, the gambit that we decide is to have less children. Um, but it's easy on Iowa Catholic Radio to think these people are just uh, devilish or foolhardy. You point out that there's a lot to actually empathize and that you understand where they're coming from. And I wonder if you could, before we get into why they're wrong, what what is it about their birth strike that you, you understand where they're coming from? Sure. So, you know, I'm a mom of four, but I'm 33, so a lot of my peers that I went to college with and such, this is a conversation they bring up as they're getting married and looking towards starting a family I have close friends who have decided I can't in good conscience have babies. And it's not because they don't like children. It's not because they hate the idea of becoming a mother. But it's really because they honestly are so terrified of the suffering 
in the world and the looming threat of climate catastrophe that they genuinely, although they would like to have children, don't feel like they can do that ethically. And so I sympathize with that because climate change is an issue for me. I am not a climate change denier. And so the idea of my children, whom I love, growing up in a world in which there could be extreme suffering due to climate change, that is something I I, I sympathize with that fear. I have that anxiety. Um, So I understand where these women are coming from when they're making this choice, but I disagree with what they think the answer is. For them, the answer is not having children. And I think that what's so sad about that is it's an example of, you know, when a person is in such despair that they decide that ending their life is the only option available to them, you know, we see that as a huge tragedy, that an individual would make this choice. But with this growing movement, it's almost as if the human race is choosing the suicide of the human race over the suffering that they might experience by continuing to have children. And so I think that that is very alarming and devastating and really requires a better response than, oh, well, there's been suffering in the world for as long as people have been having children. I don't think that response is really good enough because of the global threat of what people have experienced in the past few decades. You know, when my mom was a child, she was afraid of nuclear war, you know, when she was growing up. That's, that's a different kind of threat than a famine or something happening in a specific location, you know, when this could happen to all of humanity. So I think we have to have a better answer than just, oh, well, people have been doing it even though there's been suffering in the world for as long as the human race has been in existence. Haley, this is, this is Bud, and I really love the article. This topic was on my mind this week because my wife and I flew from Pittsburgh to Omaha uh, with six children. So <laughs> um, in, in the airport when you're dragging six children, you tend to get some looks. Um, but I, I think you really just um, hit the nail on the head with a lot of what you were addressing in the article um, one thing that I really liked was the angle with the uh, the Lord of the Rings, and I w- definitely I, I want our listeners to go to public discourse and read the article for themselves. But just in case we have any fantasy fans on uh, listening live right now, could you kind of unpack on air like how you saw that classic story kind of informing this whole conversation? Sure. Well, really, what I had to dive into as I was writing the article is the Christian theological virtue of hope. And I realized as I was writing it, I don't have a good definition of this. Like, I don't have a good handle of what hope really means. And so I dug into some different sources, but one thing that really helped me wrap my mind around it was thinking of Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings and the virtue of hope that motivates the actions that the characters take. So thinking about Frodo and Sam undertaking this perilous mission. You know, they may very well die. Maybe everyone's going to die. You know, it's a very, very dangerous quest. But they decide to take on this mission to try to destroy the ring because they're motivated by this 
hope that seems maybe foolish considering the circumstances. And yet, they end up victorious. And that hope is able to motivate them through this difficult, the difficult action that's required of them. And so thinking about that, hope is an active virtue. You know, it propels us towards action, not just digging a hole in the sand, you know, trying not to think about the scary thing. And so thinking about their story, it would not have been hopeful for them to have said, well, Sauron's really far away. This probably won't affect us in the, in the Shire. So we're just going to ignore this threat and pretend that everything is fine. That would not have been true hope. It would have been um, what St. Augustine calls the sin of presumption, this idea that you still want to hold on to your security, that you refuse to really acknowledge the, the dangers in the world. It's not the same thing as true hope, which propels us to participate with God in the redemption of the world. Candy? Yeah, I, so I have to admit that for me, this is, uh, this is almost uh, too much of a temptation to talk about this because one of my dead horses that I kick all the time is to try to point out to people that hope and optimism not only aren't the same thing, uh, but I argue that they're not even related, which uh, <laughs> I think your article and what you're pointing out really helps people start to see. Optimism is precisely like you're, you're pointing out. It's the opposite of active. Optimism is frankly lazy and static. And it's this idea that if I do nothing, that things will eventually settle out and, and, and be fine on their own. Now, to be real a big dork about this, there's nothing in the biological, physical universe that ever gives anyone any indication of this. All things tend towards entropy. We're going to have heat death of the universe, people. I'm all, as I'm yelling to these, like, college students when I'm saying this, like a big nerd. Um, but especially even in the moral life, right? Uh, the, one of the worst things we do is, uh, what's the common phrase? Like, bad things happen when good people do what? A lot of stuff? No, nothing. When they do, nothing. And so optimism is this crazy idea that if we just settle down and just settle back, everything should turn out fine. But I'm like, we're, we're the people of a resurrected Lord. What hope is, is to believe that death, that life can come from death. Optimism does not think things just sort of work out on their own. Otherwise, we wouldn't have things like the way of the cross or to take up our cross or the very dynamic, active facts of the gospel. Um, hope if it's going to be anything, um, has to be lively and life-giving, but it has to stare in the face of the world in a realistic way, uh, both physically and spiritually. And uh, I think your article does this perfectly well and fantastic, and, and probably in a much better way, because as you can tell, I get really agitated about this. So I'm glad <laughs> that you can do this calmly, Haley. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, it was very interesting to realize when I first started writing the article that I didn't know what hope was because it's a word that we use so often. It's a word we use in the Christian life and realizing, gosh, I right. really don't know what this means. I was like, do other people have this problem? I think a lot of people maybe don't know what the theological virtue of hope is really requiring of us and how, like you said, it differs from seeing the silver lining or optimism or everything's going to probably turn out fine. And I really think about we're kind of a church in crisis right now you know, with the abuse crisis. There's so much going on in the church. And on the one hand, you know, we can 
hold hold fast to the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that Christ has instituted. But surely that doesn't mean that we're called to inaction. You know, in the face of this crisis, surely we're called to prayer and fasting and actively speaking out against injustice and abuse. And that's what's required of us, rather than just saying, well, we know that everything, (laughs) God will protect his church. He says that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. The idea that that would mean that we don't do anything (laughs) right now is, is kind of bizarre. And yet I think that we often live our lives under those kind of delusions. I guess for myself, and I was thinking of like saving this question to the end of the show, but it keeps coming up in my mind. Um, when you think about just the enormous uh, sort of way of thinking of bringing a human being into the world, and especially in light of some of these issues that you've broached on um, climate change, I think on the flip side you could point to like a, a demographic winter and how you see in some countries um, – the birth rate has gotten so low that you've almost reached a tipping point where you're talking about not having enough people rather than too many. Is there any way Christians can even think about this prudentially? I guess what I have in mind is, like, there really is no uh, easy formula for saying, like, well, we've, like, as a family, we've had not enough children or too many. Um, I I don't know, like, maybe even um, from your own life, like, how do you think... I mean, is there is there a way where we say, like, now is a good time to have children, or is it just, like, more way more open-ended than that and allowing, like, our theology to inform the topic, like, generally speaking? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I think it's one of those things that sometimes, as a family, you wish, we could have some guidelines about this, but I think the Church in her wisdom doesn't give us a checklist that says, you know responsible, generous, these are the things that are required of us as we're discerning. And really, I think that it's not the number of children, but it's what we're instilling into our family culture. And so, for instance, it it always rubs me the wrong way when people are talking about, oh, if you just have less kids, then that's the best thing you can do to prevent um, climate catastrophe. When really, isn't it how we're living? Isn't it how many cars we have and how much waste we're producing and all of these things where, you know, it could be that a large family is just using one vehicle and one couple has two or three cars that maybe they don't need. And so I think that if we're talking about how many children, that's probably never the right way to frame the question but more, you know, how are we raising our family to appreciate and love God's creation because he is the creator? And how, how do we do that? How do we make this part of our family culture rather than do we have to stop having kids because of climate change? Um, or like you said, Yeah, I mean, my direction. kids are doing my part. Like, they're, they're not like, uh, they're not washing dishes. They don't shower regularly, you know, so like they're not very cleanly. So water usage really good at the Bonner household. Good job, though. Saving so much water. No, my 10-year-old boy, <laughs> I'm always like, I don't know when the last time that you showered was. This is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Nope, sorry for the uh, the dragon delay. Yeah, I, I'm just uh, throwing my uh, family under the bus here. Um, like with the, we we have like two minutes before break, um, and so it's always hard to formulate these like last questions right before break. Uh, but I, I guess I'll ask you this: Have wh what's the the one sort of critique or response back? Uh, have you heard anybody say like, well, thank you for writing this and, and taking our concern seriously? But blank. What, what what would you think would be the return response from maybe uh, some of the people in this movement? Um, I think that really it comes down to what are human beings for, and so if human mm -hmm. beings are to experience more pleasure than pain, that's their purpose. Um, that's where it made to do. Then you could say, well, hey, if if your children might really really suffer, then that's not good enough. But if we believe that the purpose of a human being transcends how much pleasure or pain they experience, then you can make the argument that it's worth bringing life into the world, even though they may and honestly will. I mean, we all suffer. Um, so whether our children suffer or not, that, that's not the rubric by which we decide whether to bring new life into the world. No, I think that something when we get back from the break that we can immediately jump into is to talk about the underlying assumption that you can quantify various aspects of human lives in ways that, that doesn't seem to actually ring true and that it's especially children that make you think of this. What What's the acceptable amount of suffering? I, I was on the bus ride over to the fair yesterday and uh, I was talking to a grandma and, and uh, she started asking me philosophical questions because I, I don't know, I do this to people. And uh, she's a, <laughs> a, a, a granddaughter who who works as a nurse on a burn unit, and she's like, well, what's what's too much suffering? And I was like, I guess I have a T-shirt or something that makes people go like, we're going to ask you a really hard question before you go eat a corn dog. Um, but, you know, that's a, that's a great question. It's also probably one that there's no sort of like mathematical formula from uh, or for. Uh, and then we get to this with how many kids is too much to Bud's question, and, and it has to do with suffering and uh, efficiency and what load can the earth carry. Uh, and maybe part of the question that we can jump back into when we, after we get back from break is uh, maybe those numbers are impossible to quantify and as Bud's pointing out when you start to quantify them we're very li liable to go completely the opposite way and start to do things like demographic winter. Folks we're talking about wonderful things here very deep things that we need to talk about all while at the Iowa State Fair which makes this one of the unique most unique broadcasts I've ever had so with Haley Stewart talking about her article on the public discourse, you'll want to stick around for this. This is The Uncommon Good, and we're going to be back right after these messages. Joining you from the Iowa State Fair. It's always wonderful to be here with the people of Iowa to be able to be broadcasting live. It's quite an experience. I appreciate it very much. And just so you know, no, I am not currently eating a corn dog. I do have some self-restraint, not loads, but enough to wait till after the broadcast. Today <laughs> on the show, we have with us Haley Stewart, uh, beekeeper's wife, mother of four, speaker and author of The Grace of Enough. She's been on the show, and we're so happy to have her back. Haley, thank you for coming back after the uh, for our, our segment number two. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Okay, so we, we ended the first part of the segment talking about 
um, to put it in Botox, the mathification of humans. Um, Haley, when you were doing some of the research, especially when you, th- th- this great point you make that we're going to talk about hope, but people don't really do a good job of defining hope. You, you, you went looking uh, for one of our favorite uh, theologians, uh, Joseph Pieper, Pieper for the People. Uh, do you see in some of the stuff he says about hope and what you're looking about in this reality of the birth striker type people, that there really does become sort of a mathification, a, a numerization, a way in which we're trying to uh, make human existence uh, into a quantifiable, measurable thing when it's not. Sure, and it's just like asking the wrong question <laughs> for for the answer right. we want. Uh, I was, as you were talking about that, I was thinking I've been following on Instagram a family who's daughter had a medical crisis. This is like a 18-month-old little baby. She ended up having to get a abdominal transplant. So not just a liver transplant, but like her all her abdominal organs had to be transplanted. She was in the hospital for months and wow. months and months. She's going to need all kinds of medical care to support her with these new organs. And it's like when when the question is asked, well, that's so expensive. Like how much is too much to keep somebody alive. It's like, well, that's mm. not even a real question. You know, you can't put a dollar number on someone's life being worth, worth keeping alive or not. You know, that's not something that makes sense. And yet I think that we often start to, you know, we try to make those kind of judgments, how much it costs to keep someone alive, how much suffering they're going to experience when we're trying to decide whether it's worth it, you know, to have children, to keep people alive, whether life is worth it. And those are just the wrong questions to ask. Yeah, I, I, I've argued with people before that, um, you know, every civilization eventually falls apart. Like, wouldn't it be great if we were the one who fell apart because we were being too kind to people and trying to keep too many people alive for once? Yeah, <laughs> that's a great point. Haley, um, so I've thought about this, and I, I hope I'm not, like, overstating things, but sometimes it feels to me that some facets of the environmental movement have almost become a quasi-religion with its own eschatology, its own idea of how the world might end, and then it has various forms of penance and even its own holy days like Earth Day or something. On the flip side, as Catholics, and I think your article really gets at this, we want to be careful because care for creation and stewardship of the earth are certainly not what we would want to describe as secular concerns. I mean, they're, they're a central part of our own witness in the world. And so I guess, have you, have you thought, uh, I know almost like 20 years ago I read this book called How to Save the World Without Worshipping Earth or something like that. Like how as Catholics do we find that golden mean where we say, of course, this is hugely significant, and yet uh, fit it within like the larger framework of of Catholic witness. That is such a great question. I think that you're totally right that environmentalism can become its own religion, and really, it doesn't even make sense because if it's separated from Christian faith, if it's separated from the idea at least of there being a creator who created these things, then 
why do we have to have all of these species? You know, why does it matter if one goes extinct? Species have gone extinct before. Why do we need pandas? Like, it, there isn't an understanding that, oh, well, if God is a creator, then every bit of his creation offers him praise through its existence. So we want to keep pandas because they point us to God, the creator. And without that framework, environmentalism as its own religion really just falls apart because there's no way to make these value judgments. You know, why, why is it good that the earth continues to, you know, that the human race continues at all? There isn't an answer to that to be found within that created religion of environmentalism. So I think as Christians, it just always has to point back to our worship and faithfulness and obedience to the Creator. And through that, you know, knowing, okay, if we are hurting the world that God made, then how is that a worshipful action for our Creator? Isn't that, isn't that sinning against the Creator if we know what we're doing is hurting the world that He made, which is beautiful and points us back to Him? So I think keeping it grounded within the framework of um, obedience to God and worship of the Creator by having wonder and love for His creation is what keeps us grounded from falling into this false religion that really can't hold together. You heard it first here, folks. Haley Stewart, pro-Panda Bear. And I'm glad that we've established this on the show. No, um, no the reason I'm bringing up Bears, Haley, is because this is some inside baseball with Bud and I, but one of the most fierce uh, oh, arguments yeah. we ever heard a bunch of yeah. students get into was about panda bears, with one student <laughs> shouting at the other, what do you think of panda bears, or uh, polar bears? What do you think about polar bears? And we were like, we're about to witness a knife fight, and it's going to be about polar bears. And uh, it was very exciting. Uh, it's it's why you become a teacher, really. Um, so no, Bo, the Bo, the the student's rebuttal was pretty great because he he mentioned the uh, Coca Cola Christmas ads, like they seem nice and cuddly in that context. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> um, so this reminds me of another dead horse that I like kicking. So, I mean, thank you for throwing up all these softballs, Haley. This is all stuff I like pointing out. Um, <laughs> So Roger Scruton, who is often known for his conservatism, he wrote a book uh, about what he says the conservative case for ecology or environmentalism. And one of the things that he pointed out, um, he, he, he uses the phrase oikophilia. Um, so if, if the, the word economy comes from oikos and nomos, the two Greek words. So oikos means home, nomos means law. Philia means love. So oikophilia means love of place. And his argument is it's very hard for humans to love abstractions, even ones like the environment, or even ones like the globe, or even climate crisis, right? These are all huge things that are often hard for, for humans to wrap their hands around, because we're incarnational, of course. But he goes, where environmentalism starts is people care about this river, they care about their trees, they care about the derogation of their place, and they can then extrapolate this um, from the love of place that they have. And he points this really great point out. We are now living in the most mobile time in all of human history. And the younger you go, the less likely you've stayed in one place. So if this is an elemental part of caring about the world, then no wonder fewer and fewer people seem to care about 
the environment because they have a hard time caring about that. They don't remember their river. My river is the Salt Fork of the Arkansas River, Grant County, Oklahoma. And you can talk to college students and they don't have experiences of like their river. Now, the reason this goes right into what you're saying, Haley, is the, the connections you make by this in this way, you would make them as children in families, right? The reason the Salt Fork River is important to me is I fished there with my dad and my brother and my cousins. And because I was a part of a family that cared about a place, Oklahoma, the Great Salt Plains, the Cherokee Outlet, I can then go like, man, that, that would be horrible if someone in Mumbai or someone in the Arctic Circle didn't get to fish in their river anymore because it was too polluted. So to your point about hope and the sort of incarnational way humans have to, 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 to realize it, it's not only that we won't survive if we don't have kids, but you can't have this hope and you can't have an environmental hope unless we have the children that can be raised in the reality of that oikophilia. And so I wonder if that's exactly one of the things that... Um, that's missing when, when people have these discussions. Oh, I love that point. I think, I think that's so insightful. And the idea that raising children within families to have experiences and memories and love for place is, would be a huge motivating factor towards having the sort of changes, making the sort of changes we need to make to preserve God's creation. I think that's a great point, and this makes me think about um, P.D. James' Children of Men. Mm. So there's, mm. there's no more children, and so society just falls apart. And I have to admit, I haven't read the book, but I watched the movie in the theaters. I've seen a lot of movies, but I've never felt so nauseous during a movie because just the darkness of the whole film was so oppressive that I just felt ill. And so I think that we, when something like we were discussing the birth strike movement of women who say, I can't in good conscience have children, bear children into a world of suffering and climate catastrophe, that that is just buying into the kind of despair that you see in the world of children of men where there are no more children in the society. There's no reason to keep things going, to make things beautiful to transmit knowledge. There's no reason for any of that anymore. And so really, if we're going to make changes, it has to be motivated out of an active hope. You know, I'm glad you brought up Children of Men because that, that was one thing that I was thinking and I had in mind. Can you imagine a state fair without children? Can you, I mean, can you, I, I know this might seem frivolous, but can you imagine if like in the Children of Men, there's this outtake and it's 20 minutes at like a fair, like a county fair in, in Britain, that's where the movie takes place. And there are no children. I mean, it, you would have to imagine in this world they just stop having them because it's too it's too oppressive to, to have a fair and not have children laughing at them. And also, that made me think of if, if people go like, how do we define hope? It might not be a definition, uh, but I know what hope feels like. And it's the part in that movie, the first time all those people hear a baby cry in their living memory, and the whole all of those soldiers stop to watch as you know the, the 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 only baby they've seen in decades like parades past and that even this war that's going on will stop to behold a child crying and that like so uh, literally a child crying is when people say define hope 
I would answer back a child crying. So thank you for bringing that up. That's exactly a, a, a something I should have thought about earlier. The, um, yeah, hey. Oh, go ahead. I, I just wanted just a quick little story. When I was researching for this article, I read about a, um, I think she was a Lakota woman. So she was protesting against the construction of the pipeline and mm-hmm. wanting to preserve water for her people. And so she was living at one of these protest camps and she decided she was pregnant and she decided she was going to stay and give birth there in the traditional way that Lakota women have given birth, which is unassisted. And she gave birth to a beautiful baby girl and named her Water is Life. And I just love that story juxtaposed to the birth strikers who are saying because of these problems, we cannot in good conscience have children. And just kind of the courage and audacity of giving birth in the middle of this protest, fighting for this justice and bringing a child into the world named Water is Life who can continue this fight with you. And I just thought that was really beautiful. Wow. Uh, one part in the article you mentioned, St. Joan of Arc, and I've always had a, a strong devotion to St. Joan. And it's a great, it, it's a great insight pointing out that for, for Catholics, you know, we don't see martyrdom as, as failure. But for someone like St. Joan of Arc, her, the end result of her life was, was a testimony to hope. And I love the line there in the article, but St. Joan's relentless pursuit of God looks like madness to the world. And I wonder, Haley, if you could comment on, sometimes I worry that as Christians, we, we still fall back into this trap that, like, we can follow Christ, but still be a cool kid at school. <laughs> and this, this kind of idea that ultimately our faith is kind of um, rational and, and sort of the way that the world understands that, you know, we've, we've, we've kind of weighed everything out and everything, like Bo said, will turn out fine in sort of an optimistic sense. I feel like when it comes to um, taking care of creation and then having children as an act of, of hope and trust in God, we have to come to terms with the fact that we, in some cases, we will look like mad men and women, and we, we will be fools for Christ. Absolutely. I mean, I think if we, if we know we're living in a culture that is completely warped, completely turned away from the gospel, then if we're not living against the grain, we can't be doing it right, right? If we're accepted by a culture that's opposed to the gospel, we can't really be wholeheartedly pursuing the gospel. There's just no way to reconcile those things. Um, speaking of St. Joan of Arc, I'd like to point out, since uh, this is a good segue to kind of wrap up the show, The Uncommon Good is dedicated to St. Joan of Arc. On hey. our uh, logo, we have her uh, we, we have her statement, Act and God Will Act, which might be a good way to define what hope is. We believe that if we do something, even if it's co- entirely small and ultimately fruitless by the world's standards, that God will act, and of course, his will not be fruitless. His actions will bear much fruit. He does not send out his spirit except that it returns to him a hundredfold. So, Haley, if that's what we're going to end with, do you think that's a good enough definition of hope? We'll go with St. Joan of Arc, act and God will act. 
I love that definition because it acknowledges our complete dependence on God, and yet the call to, to be faithful requires our participation in the work that He wants to do in the world. I think that's such a great definition. I'd never heard that. I really love that. Well, um, look, we... We don't have loads of time left, but I want to make sure to give you time where people can go. Uh, so not only this article, what are other places that people can read what you're up to? And especially your book, which it's, it's still, I know it, it, it's still an, a new book to me. So make sure you, you talk about that and where people can find those things. Sure. So the book is called The Grace of Enough, Pursuing Less and Living More in a Throwaway Culture. And you can get it from Ave Maria Press or Amazon or wherever you get your books. My blog is Carrots. Michaelmas, so carrots like the vegetable from Michaelmas, like Feast of St. Michael, MAS.com, and my podcast is Fountains of Carrots. And then I'm on Instagram and Twitter where I'm at Haley Carrots. Well, I want to actually bring uh, one other thing before we let you go. Um, People says a good epilogue. Why all of this should really stick to the, the audience who's listening or the people who read it? is you've had four kids. You failed to mention that all four of your pregnancies uh, were not a walk in the park. Do you mind me like bringing up this uh, biographical no, element to really stick home what you're pointing out, if you don't mind saying that briefly? Sure. So I've had hyperemesis gravidarum during my pregnancies, mostly the first, third, and fourth, which is basically like it feels like you have a stomach flu, but it's times worse than the stomach flu <laughs> and it just lasts for nine months so it's terrible um, but totally worth it to have these children and you know I think that we often when we're talking about trying to make decisions about pleasure and pain and you know what what is too much what's worth it and what's not worth it and sometimes I think like oh gosh you know having me be out of commission for nine months that's tough on my family, which, which it is. But when my kids look at, look at their baby sister, they're like, oh my gosh, can we have more babies? I'm like, do you remember how sick I was and how we basically couldn't go anywhere? I couldn't do anything? And they're like, yeah, but it's so worth it. Like, look at, look at Hildy. She's so wonderful. And just them, like, seeing them have that perspective is so beautiful that, you know, that that, that perspective of human life being the most important thing hasn't been wrenched from them. <laughs> they haven't been given these rubrics yet of, um, you know, what makes something worth it, that trying to quantify, as we were saying, human life. And so I, I find a lot of hope in that as well. Amen. I mean, you know, I, 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 my, my personal experience with like having five kids, it doesn't really matter much. I'm like, I've been, I, I woke up a few times. I've had to change a diaper. Ooh. But uh, people, of course, like you, uh, my wife, Bud's wife, uh, the testimony of women who, like you said, show that like all of that pain is worth it for uh, the bounty that is God's hope and grace. Haley, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Can't wait to have you back on. God bless and thanks again for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. This is the Uncommon Good for Bud Marr. I just want to say may Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, reign in our hearts, in our families, our city, our state, all the state fairs you might be having, our nation, the world, solar system, galaxy, the whole kit and caboodle. This is the Uncommon Good, and we'll be back next week. 
The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard every week on wonderful Catholic stations like this one and anytime on podcast. Just search for The Uncommon Good.